A.W. Tozer once said, How utterly terrible is the current idea that Christians can serve God at their own convenience. You know, every single day, every single one of us makes lots of choices, don't we? We all make all kinds of choices all day, every day. And many of those choices are probably really small ones of lesser significance than others, like choosing what you're going to eat for breakfast or which socks to put on that morning. Of course, there are other choices that obviously affect our lives profoundly. Uh, The moment you say yes in marriage, the day you decide to start a family, right? We all make all kinds of different choices every single day, some really small ones and some really big ones, the majority of those probably falling somewhere in between those two extremes. However, as different and varied as our choices may be from day to day, there is a consistency for most of us, a a common denominator for determining those choices that we make, both big and small. And that common denominator is whatever is best, or at least whatever we perceive to be best for us. Whatever choice we believe will benefit us the most, both in the little choices and the big ones. Typically, uh, we choose our wardrobe for the day based on what would make us the most comfortable or what we think would look the best. We make decisions based uh, on where and what we're going to eat, uh, based on what we think is best for our bodies or maybe just what we would enjoy eating the most. We make career choices and relationship choices and purchasing choices and even very simple personal choices every day based on what we believe will bring us the most personal benefit or the most personal satisfaction because that's our natural inclination to make choices that best serve ourselves. But you know, as Christians, of course, first of all, we're supposed to be followers of Christ, right? We're supposed to emulate him the way that he lived, the choices that he made. And his earliest followers certainly understood that, by the way. The Apostle John wrote, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in me ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. The Apostle Peter wrote, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps, 1 Peter two twenty one. So obviously Jesus' first disciples, those who were actually with him every day, they knew that Jesus intended for us to live our lives just like he lived his. And, and where do you think they got that idea from? Well, they got it from Jesus. He said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John 12, 25 and 26. So there was this very clear and honestly very basic foundational understanding between Jesus and his disciples that we're supposed to follow him. We're supposed to live like he lived, which means making decisions on a regular basis that do not necessarily benefit us directly. Right, but how often, if we're being honest, how often do we make decisions in our daily lives that do not directly benefit ourselves or meet some immediate desire that we have? How often do we knowingly and willingly, even joyfully, make a choice that will undoubtedly benefit someone else while making our own lives a little harder? Moms do that every single day, all day long. 
So you get a pass here. The rest of us, right? How often do we really willingly, joyfully, knowingly make choices that will benefit someone else while making our own lives a little harder? Because that's what Jesus did every day. He denied himself. He let go of his own desires. He disregarded his own needs. He refused to make choices that would make his own life easier, preferring instead to make the difficult choices and then willingly accept whatever hardship those choices brought about in his own life for the sake of serving other people and ultimately his Father in heaven. And that wasn't based, by the way, on a feeling. Okay, when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, just before he was taken away to be crucified, knowing good and well what was coming. He said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. And then he said, not as I will, but not what I want, as you will. Matthew 26, 38 and 39. You see, Jesus' decision to serve the Father's will in that profoundly difficult moment had absolutely nothing to do with feelings. He told his disciples that his soul was very sorrowful. Jesus certainly didn't feel like going to the cross. Now, that decision had nothing to do with feelings and everything to do with a choice, a choice to serve the Father no matter what hardship that choice would ultimately bring upon himself. But the reality is, if we're, if we're honest, we don't live like that today. Not, not in this country, for the most part. I mean, of course, there are exceptions to that. But on the whole, we've been taught in our culture to love ourselves and to make choices that benefit ourselves before anyone else because God wants us to be happy. Well, listen, God does want you to be happy. He certainly does. But he also wants your happiness to be found in him, in choosing him, instead of being found in choosing the temporary pleasures of a self-serving lifestyle. That's why David wrote, delight yourself in the Lord. And then he'll give you the desires of your heart. In other words, all that other stuff you want. If you, if you don't care about that other stuff, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll take care of all that other stuff. Psalm 37, 4. That's the Ruchi translation. Because David knew that the source of true happiness, he knew it was found in God, not in serving himself, which is also one of the non-negotiables of the gospel, by the way. The gospel demands that we make a choice, either the way of Christ or the way of ourselves. But to be sure, it has to be one or the other, because there's no middle ground. There was no middle ground with Jesus. There was no middle ground with his disciples. And listen, if you're going to live a life that has great impact in this world for the sake of the gospel, then there cannot be any middle ground in your life either when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. You simply have to choose. If you're serious about being a follower of Christ, then you have to choose whether you're going to spend your time on this planet serving yourself first or serving him first because there's no middle ground which happens to be the very message that we find Joshua sharing with his people with God's people at the end of of his astonishingly remarkable life as we draw to a close this morning our study in the book of Joshua so at 110 years old still full of vigor and passion for God and his people. Joshua gathers the Israelites together to address them one final time, to renew and to ratify God's covenant with them in what was an echo of Exodus 19, 17, when Moses gathered the congregation at the foot of Mount Sinai to ratify the covenant between them and God the first time. 
And so here at the end of Joshua's life, rather than giving them some soft and sweet and endearing farewell address, Joshua draws a proverbial line in the sand and he makes that now famous challenge to the people of Israel. He challenges them to make a choice because he knows he won't be around much longer to lead them and yet he so desperately wants them to continue following after God that he stands before the nation of Israel and he says, look, you have a choice to make. What's it going to be? How are you going to choose to live the rest of your lives when I'm gone? Because you can choose to serve yourselves if you want to. You can choose to serve other gods if you want to. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was the defining moment for God's people then. And listen, we need that same kind of defining moment for God's people now. We need Joshua's in the halls of our nation's capital today. We need Joshua's in our pulpits today. We need Joshua's in our families today. Men full of vigor and passion for God and for his people who aren't afraid to stand up and say, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unfortunately, that's, that's precisely what we're lacking in so many of our leaders and in so many of our churches and in so many of our homes today. People of God who aren't afraid to make the hard choices every day to serve Him even before they serve themselves. And you understand, that's, that is what we're actually talking about because that's what we're actually lacking today. Serving the Lord isn't just being willing to stand up and say the right thing. Anybody can do that. No, choosing to serve the Lord means choosing to deny ourselves and that's, that's what we have a woeful shortage of in our culture today. People who are willing to boldly deny themselves so they can actually serve God the way that he's called us to serve him. That's what Jesus modeled for us. It's not just what he said, it's what he did. He served God by denying himself because you cannot serve God without denying yourself. I'm just going to say that one again and let it sink in because I have to. I have to let this sink in often. You cannot serve God without denying yourself. You can't do everything you ever want to do for yourself at every moment of every day all the time and serve God at the same time. Serving God necessarily means denying yourself at times. Right after Jesus said to his disciples, whoever loses, uh, loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The very next thing he said after that was, now is my soul troubled. Notice that's a statement. It's not a question. He doesn't say, now is my soul troubled? No, he says, now is my soul troubled. Right? We already read that his soul was very sorrowful when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you see what Jesus was saying? He's saying, you understand, my soul is wrecked over what I know I must do in order to serve my Father in heaven. But this is the entire reason he put me on this earth to begin with, to deny myself so that I could serve him in the way that he wants me to. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's another way of saying, I know that God, what God's calling me to, and I know it's going to be hard at times, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a resolve from deep within your troubled soul, not just to stand up and say the right thing, but to deny yourself so that you can stand up and do the right thing. 
And that's what our story is about today as we close this sermon series from the book of Joshua. So let's turn there together and read this final chapter and see what Joshua has to teach us about serving God with your very life. Joshua chapter 24. We'll begin with the first 13 verses. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So after gathering the nation of Israel together at Shechem, God speaks through Joshua and gives a summary to the people of all that he had done for them from the time of Abraham right up to the present day. And before we talk about what God did say here, I just want to point out what he did not say, okay? Even though the Israelites often, as we've seen going through this book, often rebelled against God from the time they left Egypt until now, all through their wilderness wanderings, and even though they disobeyed his orders in some of the key battles in Canaan, and even though they failed to consult with God first before fighting some of those battles, and even though they failed to completely drive the Canaanites out of the promised land as commanded before and during those battles, even though they often made a mess of their lives and their calling along the way. In spite of all of that, notice that all of their sin and all of their disobedience and all of their failures are glaringly absent from this historical summary given to them by God himself. I'm telling you, that would have spoken volumes to them, and it should speak volumes to us about God's disposition toward those who belong to him. It says so much about how he feels about us, even though we make a mess of our own lives and a mess of our own calling sometimes, even though we sin and we disobey and we fail miserably at times in our lives in his sovereignty, when he calls us to himself and we then choose to serve him through humble repentance, he casts all of our sin and all of our disobedience and all of our failure, as the prophet Micah says, into the depths of the sea, Micah seven nineteen, And just as he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. 
This is the very picture of a loving God who washes us clean from the filth of our own sin and floods our lives with grace and forgiveness and love even though we don't deserve it. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea and remembers it no more. You understand, this is what allows us to be able to deny ourselves and serve him to begin with. It's not that he forgives us because of what we've done for him. No, it's all about what we can now do for him because of what he's already done for us. This is the message he was giving them here in the story as he explains all that he's already done for them without once mentioning all that they failed to do for him along the way. It's a powerful message being conveyed here, and that, that's just based on what he did not say. Now let's talk about what he did say, okay? God is making sure that his people understand that their salvation and inheritance is his doing. It's something that he initiates with those whom he has called to himself. In other words, God alone is the initiator, satisfier, and final arbiter of our salvation. Okay, these, these first 13 verses are a powerful treatise on the sovereignty of God. From Abraham all the way through, every step of the way, through every suffering, every attack, every wandering, every barrier, and every battle, no matter what the people of God faced, he was right there with them, giving their enemies into their hands, as he describes it in verses 8 and 11. By the way, that phrase, into your hand, was an ancient Near Eastern expression that represented power or control. So even the authority and control that the Israelites had over their enemies, even that, they only had because God gave it to them. Right? And then he explains in verse 12 how he gave it to them. He says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove out before you the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or your bow. The word hornet uh, in that verse is a symbol for the terror that God often rained down on the enemies of Israel in battle. We see that same Hebrew word for hornet and the Hebrew word for terror used in conjunction with, another, uh, with one another back in Exodus chapter 23, where the conquest of Canaan is prophesied and God talks about going before them to drive out their enemies. The point is that God not only won the battles for the Israelites, but he actually went before them and he terrorized their enemies before the Israelite armies ever even arrived. And then just to drive the point home that God was the only reason they're able to enjoy the promise of Canaan at all, he ends the passage with, I gave you a land on which you'd not labored and cities that you'd not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, hey, this is all God's doing. Every bit of it, because he's sovereign over every hair on our heads and every beat of our hearts and every breath in our lungs, God is in control. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In first century Hebrew culture, the sparrow was considered the smallest and one of the most least significant of all the creatures, and the penny was the least valuable of all the Roman coins. And yet Jesus said, not even one of these falls apart from your father. In other words, God is sovereign over even the most seemingly insignificant events. And to believe anything less than that is to attempt to diminish the very essence of who God is, which undermines our understanding, of course, of who it is we serve. Listen, I don't want to serve a God who isn't in control. Do you? The thought of serving a God who's not sovereign, a God who has left the fate of this world up to us. Are you kidding me? 
That in and of itself is nothing short of terrifying, not to mention it is an exceedingly vulgar insult to the nature of an almighty, all-knowing, all-present God who created the very air that we breathe. God, help us not to use the air in our lungs that you've given us to breathe out insults against your great name. Sometimes I think, uh, if I'm being honest, I think sometimes we've become far too casual in the way we think about and talk about God. That wasn't always the case. When Ezra the priest spoke of God, he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. The prophet Isaiah understood this well as he wrote down these words from the Lord. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. You see, these great men of old understood that God was absolutely sovereign. The apostle Paul wrote in him, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. God is sovereign over every single part of our lives, which actually should bring us unspeakable peace and comfort and confidence. Not that life is going to be without hardship or heartache. No, but because we serve a God who is sovereign, even over our hardship and heartache, we can find peace and comfort and confidence in the knowledge that he can use even our greatest hardships and our greatest heartaches ultimately to serve his eternal purposes for our eternal good. That's why Paul was able to say that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not just the pleasant things, or the easy things, or the pleasurable things. No, even the most difficult things. He works it out, all of it out, according to his sovereign will. The alternative is to serve a God who has no control over most of what happens in this world, which is certainly not the God that we read about in the Bible. He couldn't, listen, he couldn't work all things according to the counsel of his will if he wasn't ultimately in control of all things. Now, having said all of that, The second half of the story shifts from God speaking to the people about what he's done for them through Joshua to Joshua speaking directly to the people about their response to what God has done for them. And it comes in the form of a covenant treaty, a renewal and ratification of God's covenant with Israel. Let's read it together, verses 14 through 28. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we shouldn't, uh, should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. 
But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away foreign gods that are coming among you or that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put it in place, statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So in the first 13 verses, God reminds the people of just how much he loves them, which is evident by all that he's done for them. And so in response... Joshua says to the congregation, now therefore, in other words, because of who God is and because of what he's done for us, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Okay, to fear the Lord is, first of all, to recognize the sheer magnitude of who God is and the unlimited nature of what he's capable of, and then to respond to all of that appropriately. And that appropriate response is what the rest of this chapter focuses on, our commitment to serve God in sincerity and faithfulness, as Joshua says. In fact, the theme of service to God is so central to this final chapter of the Joshua saga that we find the word serve, it's abad in the ancient Hebrew, being used no less than 16 times uh, just in this one chapter. Nine of those times show up between verses 14 and 18. So it's really important that we understand what Joshua meant when he used that word, because he used it over and over and over again. Okay, the root word in the Hebrew referred to someone being a slave or a servant, not, not in the oppressive sense that we think of slavery today, but very much in the sense that God is a king and we belong to him. Okay? We're not his buddies. We're his subjects who happen to be utterly and absolutely devoted to their king, which is precisely how these men in Scripture saw themselves. Moses and Joshua are both referred to as a servant of the Lord in Joshua 1.1 and Joshua 24.29 with the word servant in both of those verses being the Hebrew word ebed, which is directly translated as slave and which comes from the same root word for serve that Joshua uses all throughout this chapter. Unless we think this only applies in the Old Testament context, by the way, the Apostle Paul referred to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus in Romans 1.1. Then again, he also included Timothy in that description in Philippians 1.1. In both cases, very purposefully choosing to use the Greek word doulos, which is literally translated as slave. Okay, in each case, these are men who recognize who God is and what he's capable of. And as a result, they express their undying, sincere, and faithful devotion as grateful subjects to their loving and almighty king, which is exactly what Joshua is trying to get God's people to recognize and acknowledge and commit to here at Shechem. He's driving home the point to the Israelites that they must choose. They must choose to serve God, to become sincere and faithfully devoted servants of God if they're going to be able to honor the covenant that's being ratified at Shechem. And so Joshua holds nothing back. 
First of all, he very intentionally chooses Shechem as the meeting place because of the profound significance that Shechem held for God's people, and more specifically, the patriarchs of Israel. Okay? Shechem is the place where God addresses Abraham for the very first time in Canaan, all the way back in Genesis 12:7. Uh, Shechem was the place where Jacob purchased land in Genesis 33, where Joseph's bones were ultimately buried. Shechem was also the place where Jacob led his household in burying pagan idols in Genesis 35 which is particularly significant in light of the fact that when Joshua tells the Israelites to put away the foreign gods that are among you, here in verse 23, if you read it in Hebrew, he's quoting verbatim what Jacob spoke to his own family at the idol-burying ceremony they had back in Genesis 35. And, And listen, there's a whole lot more here that I want to tell you about concerning the details of this ceremony. It's amazing, but we don't have time to go through all of it. I'm just going to mention a few things. Keep in mind as we go that every aspect of what Joshua was doing and saying was intended to capture and captivate the hearts and minds of the Israelites because he didn't want them to miss the gravity of what was happening here. So he calls the meeting at Shechem, this place of such rich historical and theological significance for God's people, and not just any place in Shechem. First of all, we have a wealth of archaeological evidence that Shechem was an important center of pagan worship in the Middle Bronze Age from about... 2100 BC to 1550 BC, and among the many courtyard temples, there stood one well-known fortress temple referred to as Elbereth in Judges 946, which scholars believe is the very spot where Joshua was now standing as he calls the people of God together for this one final gathering. And what a gathering it was, where for the first 13 verses in the chapter, Joshua stands at the fortress temple and prophesies a direct message to them from God about all that he had done for them. And then he intentionally follows the well-established ceremonial order of ratifying a covenant or a treaty between a suzerain, a sovereign, a conquering king, and that king's new vassals or subjects. The, The Hittites were famous for this kind of ceremony, but it was known and practiced throughout the ancient Near Eastern cultures. And central to that ceremony was the part where the vassals, in this case the Israelites, pledged their allegiance, their loyalty through sincere and faithful servitude to their loving king. I'm telling you, there was so much going on here. The weight, the gravity, the significance of where they were standing and who was addressing them and what he was challenging them to do and the way he was challenging them to do it. It was nothing short of awe-inspiring. The heaviness of the moment must have been palpable for the Israelites as Joshua thunders away about the faithfulness of God and the covenant that he wanted to renew with them on that great day. Okay, I hope this helps you understand the backdrop of the moment where Joshua says to them, standing at the center of pagan worship, surrounded by a pagan culture in the place where Jacob buried the pagan idols of the past, as Joshua leads the people of God into a sacred ceremony, this is the profoundly historic and theological backdrop for God's people. The moment when Joshua says to them, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and so with all the pomp and circumstance of a royal ceremony with all the courage and backbone of a battle-hardened warrior and with all the force of an irrevocable royal decree Joshua draws a line in the sand and proclaims to the people that no matter what anyone else does he is choosing to serve his king with his very life 
which not only says a lot about the heart of Joshua, but it's also a clear indication of the free will of man. Right? Because after 13 verses, which so powerfully demonstrate the sovereignty of God, Joshua doesn't say, so as for me and my house, because God is sovereign, we have no choice but to serve the Lord. No, he says to the people, even though God is sovereign, you still have to choose whom you will serve. That decision is still up to you. So what's it going to be? Okay, the fact that God is sovereign does not nullify our own free will. There are people who believe that, that those two doctrines, the sovereignty of God and the free will of men, are mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. I don't believe that to be the case at all. In fact, I've had people over the years point out to me uh, that the phrase free will is never mentioned in Scripture, therefore it must not be true, it must not exist. That, that's like saying the Trinity doesn't exist because the Bible never mentions a Trinity either. It doesn't. But of course we know the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, does exist because it's described all throughout Scripture, even though the term Trinity is never used. Look, all throughout Scripture, there's clear evidence of the sovereignty of God over all of creation and over all of time as we know it. There's also clear evidence all throughout Scripture of the free will of man as a part of that creation throughout time as we know it. And both are demonstrated in this one chapter. Okay, it's called compatibilism if you're a theology nerd. How can it be that God, though, is sovereign over every hair on our heads and every beat of our hearts and every breath in our lungs if we also have free will to make our own decisions. The answer is our free will is not only one aspect of God's love for us, it's also actually an aspect of his sovereignty over us. God created this world and determined its beginning, middle, and end before it ever existed. And yet within that good plan, knowing what his creation would choose, because he loved his creation, he gave us the free will to be able to make choices and bring with them very real consequences, both good and bad, right? The alternative was to create a world full of mindless, pre-programmed human beings who had no choice but to obey for those who choose them. Well, which would you rather be, right? It's far more loving for us to have freedom of will, even if we choose to use that freedom to disobey a loving God. But don't think for a second that just because we have the freedom to make our own choices, that God isn't big enough or powerful enough or able enough to work all of those free choices that we make no matter what those choices are, both good and bad, together, ultimately, to the fulfillment of his will, his good plan for us in this earth, which again is why Paul says that God works, what? All things, together according to the counsel of his will, all things. That includes the good things, the bad things, that he allows us the choices to freely make. Whichever we choose, he's still sovereign over every possible choice before us, regardless of what we ultimately decide to do. And because God is outside of space and time, he knows every single decision that every single person on earth would ever make before the earth was ever created. And so his plan for this world before the world existed has factored into it every one of those decisions, those choices that we would ever make before we ever existed. That's how his sovereignty and our free will work together, precisely because he is sovereign even when we make the wrong choices, the ones that he doesn't want us to make. God is still sovereign. He's still big enough and powerful enough to bring about his will in the end. Now, that's all very theological. Let's talk about why it's also very practical and extremely important for us to understand how this works in our lives every day. Because along with our free will, comes a responsibility. In fact, just like the covenant of old, the gospel demands that we choose who we're going to serve. The gospel requires a response. 
So choose this day whom you will serve. That was the clarion call of Joshua in the final days of his life to God's people then. It is the clarion call of the gospel of Jesus Christ to God's people today. The gospel demands a response, and it is up to you and you alone to decide. I don't care if you were raised in church, what your parents taught you. Only you can make that choice. No one can make the decision for you, and God won't make that decision for you. Choose this day whom you will serve. And of course, the people responded to Joshua in verse 18. We also will serve the Lord, for he's our God. By the way, when Joshua says to them, he, meaning God, will not forgive your transgressions or your sins, he's talking about unrepentant sin, those who choose to reject God and serve the false gods of the Canaanites, as the next verse says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, which they were doing, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. In other words, repent of your sin and come back to me. And so the people reaffirmed their commitment, their choice to serve their God. And as we see in these concluding verses, at least for this current generation, they did just that. So let's finish the story. Verse 29 to the end. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at uh, Timnah, Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Joshua compels the people under the old covenant to make a choice, and they choose well. Likewise, Jesus compels us under the new covenant to make that same choice, right? After warning his followers about the dangers of chasing after the things of this world, all of the things that people worship in the culture around us, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, Matthew 6, 24. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve. Because whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. John 12, 25, and 26. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve. This is the way of Christ, and to be sure, the way of Christ is not an easy path, because you cannot serve God without denying yourself. Jesus made that abundantly clear in everything he said and did. The question is, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to deny yourself? To let go of your own desires if need be? To disregard your own needs when necessary? To refuse to make choices that would make your own life easier? Preferring instead to make the difficult choices and then willingly accept whatever hardship those choices bring about in your own life for the sake of serving other people and the will of Jesus Christ? Choose this day whom you will serve. Are you willing to make that choice to follow Christ exclusively? That is the choice which at times will undoubtedly benefit someone else while making your own life harder. But that's what it takes if you're going to choose to serve Jesus Christ. It takes a resolve from deep within your soul, not just to stand up and say the right thing, but to deny yourself so that you can stand up and do the right thing. 
The gospel demands a response to that challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve, either the way of Jesus or the way of yourself. It's one or the other, and there's no middle ground. So choose this day whom you will serve, because there's only one answer. Even though it will be hard at times, there's only one answer. Even though I will have to deny myself, there's only one answer to that challenge that will bring lasting happiness, real fulfillment, and true purpose to your life. There's only one answer. Why don't we all say it? together say it with me as for me and my house we will serve the Lord let's pray